Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in our fifth week of a series that we have called Prepare the Way. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've affectionately referred to this as one of the most important series we've ever done in the history of the Father's House. And the reason we are calling it one of the most important series we've ever done is because we are focusing in on this foundational promise that God has given to us before we ever started as a church back in 2017. Uh, th- this promise comes in the form of a prayer that the prophet Isaiah offers up on behalf of the people of Israel, having spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon as a result of their turning their backs on God. Now the Holy Spirit provokes Isaiah to write about a time that would come where they would return back to their city, they would live safe and sound, and God would bless them in the process. But when the Holy Spirit gave us this scripture back in 2017, he permitted us to personalize it and to use it as a a template to declare all of the things that God would do in our day, not just what he's done in the past, but that he would once again revive a city, cause thousands of people to come to know him. The reputation of San Francisco would change as a result of what the Holy Spirit would do, and we are clinging to these promises in this chapter. Um, Our key text is found in the 10th verse of the 62nd chapter, uh, where Isaiah says this. He says, go out through the gates, smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, and prepare the way for my people to return. Um, At our anniversary service, uh, the first week in this series, we looked at that scripture, and we talked about the promise of salvation that would come to our city, that many who don't know Christ would come to know him. Um, As we did the the diligent work to remove the stones and get the rocks out of the road and prepare the way for them to come home. Specifically, we talked about the stone of shame that so many people tend to trip over on their way to God, and we reminded ourselves that we are going to be a community that welcomes with open arms whosoever walks in the door. We're not going to shame them into coming to Christ, but we're going to love them and tolerate and be like Jesus to those that are turning to him. Uh, In the second week, we looked at some of the new names that are mentioned in uh, this chapter uh, as we spoke about the subject of identity and the critical role that our perceived identity plays in the way that we live our lives. And then in the third week, we talked about crossing over some lines and refusing to walk away when things get difficult in our faith, when the Lord challenges us with his word as we discuss this promise of people remaining safely in the house of God and no longer being picked off by the enemy in the city of San Francisco. And then last week was incredible as Robin shared with us the kind of the heartbeat of our intercessors here at the Father's house and reminded that we all have a wall God has called us to stand on and that we have been called to pray fervent prayers over our city until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. And if you were like me last week, we all stood on our feet in tears, just clapping because our hearts resonated with with this this cry from the heart of God for the city of San Francisco. I I, uh, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you were not here, but I told Robin afterwards, I'm like, that was like a gut message. You just like, you felt every word as she was sharing it because she's just lived it out for all these years. And in fact, I told her team afterwards, I'm like, guys, I think it's time for me to retire. I'm gonna just set up the ladders for Robin so that she can shimmy her way up there and 
I'll go out to the baptism tank and hang out there and baptize people, but my job here is done. Clearly, there are others that are carrying something that, that needs to be delivered in this house. So go back and listen to that. Uh, today, we are in the fifth week, and in this fifth week, we're going to revisit some of the names that we discussed in the second week of this series. Uh, you might recall if you were here or if you listened to it back online, um, I mentioned that we were going to spend an entire week on one of the names in the list here, uh, not just because of the frequency of its mention in this chapter, but because of the frequency of its use throughout the narrative of Scripture. And today is that day, because today we're saying yes to the dress, and we're talking about the bride. <laughs> uh, turn your uh, attention to the screen or open your Bible to the fourth and fifth verse in Isaiah 62, uh, where we read our, our text for today. It says, your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O San Francisco, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. And then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So, so, so four times in these two verses, Isaiah uses the B word. He, he talks about the bride, specifically as he begins to describe not just the commitment of God to his people, but the commitment of his people to a city. And Isaiah is not alone in this language. Scripture uses this phrase, the bride, over and over and over again to describe the people of God, both Old and New Testament. It's an analogy that you'll find replete in Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. That is the analogy used for the church. And so since you are called the bride, I'm gonna make you do something that I know you hate to do, but I like doing it. I love making people feel uncomfortable. Welcome to the Father's house. I'm gonna have you turn to your neighbor, look longingly in their eyes, and I want you to say, you make a beautiful bride. That's right. Even the big buff burly guys, come on. You make a beautiful bride, yeah, come on, yeah. Tell them. If you're single, you're welcome. That was your moment right there. Oh, I'm not married. How'd you like to be? Hey. I'm just here to serve, man, whatever you need. <laughs> Let me give you a title. Uh, so this is a slightly inappropriate title, and I'm aware of that. I'm a slightly inappropriate individual. Uh, I want to borrow the prophetic words from the queen herself, Beyonce. And we're going to title this chat today, Put a Ring on It. <laughs> Put a ring on it. That was a sinister laugh right there. <laughs> Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us today. Thank you uh, for the promises of your word. Thank you that these are uh, words that come alive off the page. And even though they were penned 3,500 years ago, uh, they bear significance and prophetic weight in our day and in our age. Thank you for what you speak over our city. Thank you, what you speak, for what you speak over the people of our city. And God, today, may we lay hold of these uh, promises and identify with them as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. Men. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Robin and I were at a, uh, a pastor's event where there were pastors from all over the nation coming to hear from some other individuals and strategize together. And uh, during one of the breaks between sessions, I found myself in the lobby uh, in a very familiar conversation I've had many times before. Uh, one of the pastors from another city in our nation came up and began to talk to me and ask about our church. And eventually he asked this question. Uh, he said, tell me about your COVID experience. 
And I've had this chat enough now that I know what people mean when they ask the question about our COVID experience. What they really want is recovery metrics. What they're asking underneath the surface is, how many people did you lose? How much money did you lose? And how close are you to recovering all that you lost in that COVID process? And I know that sounds really insecure, but pastors are people too, and we're all insecure at some level, and misery does love company, even among pastors. And so some people just wanna feel like, okay, you're struggling, I'm struggling, I just feel better about the fact that we're struggling together. But, but I've come to learn in these conversations that I'm a really depressing pastor to talk to when being asked about the COVID experience. I don't encourage other people because our COVID experience was uniquely different than most other churches in our nation. And, and by that, I don't mean that like we enjoyed COVID, like it was horrible, let's be clear. I'm like, it wasn't good. We all lost friends and family members relationally or to the disease. We know people that lost their homes and their jobs and their life savings. And I actually think some of the divisions we face as a nation right now are the, the overflow of much of what we experienced during that contentious season. So I'm not suggesting that COVID was good. All right. Just hear me clearly. If I never had to be on another Zoom call in my life, I would be very, very grateful for that. I still kind of twitch a little bit when I think about preaching from the basement and like, you know, having to pastor through that. It was, it was a rough season, but that said, by and large, I think we weathered the COVID season really, really well as a community. In fact, we, to borrow a phrase from one of the series we did during that season, I think we learned how to stand in that storm. Uh, this might be news to you, but our church actually grew through COVID. Financially, we grew through COVID. And we came out on the other side looking better than we did when we were first starting in the, in the pandemic. And the... Limited pruning that we did experience was good, not because I didn't like those people, but because it allowed us to, to build on a more stable foundation and in a healthier way to experience the church that you're a part of right now. So it, it, it was actually not as bad for us as it was for many other churches. We had a uniquely different experience. And I know that there's a lot of practical things that played into our experience being different. I, I'm not arrogant enough to say, well, you know, God just loved us more than those other churches and that's why we experienced and we experienced. Like, that's not true. God loved all churches. His hand was not sovereignly upon the Father's house because to suggest that would mean to suggest that it wasn't on other churches and that's not how God rolls. I know that there were some practical things that we did. We were willing to open and close as many times as we need to and open, close, open, close, snip, snap, snip, snap. Like we were able to do whatever we needed to do in that process. You're welcome for that little undertone joke. Uh, and I think that helped in the process. We were aggressive about chasing people down and making sure that no one was isolated. We ran a campaign called For the One where we literally called every single person in the church, asked if we could pray, asked what their needs were in that moment. We chased individuals down and let them, didn't let them isolate themselves. We were willing to gather whenever and however we legally could in that process. We had worship services out on the great highway and we gathered to get downstairs in our basement, did pursuit in a parking garage because we understood that the church was never intended to be a gathering of online people, but it was supposed to be a gathering of the saints together in a public space. The definition of the word in Greek, ekklesia, means those who were called out of darkness and called together in a public space. And so the moment we were allowed to do that, we're like, I'm getting around my brother and sisters. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus. We're going to declare that he is still good regardless of what we're seeing. So yeah, there's a lot of practical things we did in that process. And so I can't like exclusively blame the sovereignty of God for, for all that we experienced. But while I can't do so exclusively, I can do largely because I think one of the main reasons our experience is uniquely different 
is because of the promise we just read a moment ago in this chapter of scripture. A promise that God made to us before we ever gathered together as a church, a promise that he made to us before any of us ever knew what coronavirus was or COVID-19, and a promise that Isaiah wrote 3,500 years before any of us in the room were ever born. A promise that goes like this. Your children will commit themselves to you, O San Francisco, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. I think the reason that our church remained strong and continues to be strong is because God has brought people together in this community, woven the Father's house together with individuals who are fiercely devoted to the city of San Francisco. People who said, I'm planting myself here. I'm not allowing the things of this world to push me away. I'm not just passing through, gonna collect an income for tech and then go about my life in another place. No, I understand that my presence here matters and God is doing something of eternal significance in the city of San Francisco. So I'm gonna commit myself to this land, come hell or high water, like a young man commits himself to his bride. Which I think is a beautiful phrase the way a young man commits himself to his bride. Let's think about that for a moment. How does a young man commit himself to his bride? Young, of course, referring to the naivete during the engagement season or the early days of marriage before that young man knows any better. <laughs> how, how does a young man commit himself in that season? Come on, you've seen the, the early stages of love, right? Young guys will do crazy things for the girl that they love, right? They'll sing songs when they got no business singing. They'll recite poetry that they wrote. Roses are red, violets are another color. Like they, no business reciting poetry. They'll spend all their money and other people's money to buy gifts for the person that they love, exhaust their life savings just to prove and shower with affection. They'll stay up late into the night, lose sleep to have conversations with the woman they love. Even if that conversation is on a phone. You hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, okay, let's, let's hang up together, all right? One, two, three. You didn't hang up, I hate you. I just want to listen to you breathe. <sighs> Don't marry him. He's a serial killer if that's what he's looking for, all right? <laughs> there is no limit to what a young man will do for the woman he loves. But I think you could capture all of it in the, the simple vows that are made at an altar. You've heard them before, right? I promise to love you, to cherish you, have you, hold you in good times and in bad, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, I give myself completely unto you until death do us part. Simply put, it's a limitless love. There's no area of the life in a young man that would be left off the table. He's completely and totally committed to the woman he loves. No cross fingers, no cross toes, no loopholes. All of you loves all of me. Like he, he's gonna, he's gonna give himself completely. 
I, I love the, the exchange of vows in the Jewish wedding ceremonies. Uh, there's a phrase that's uttered both by the groom and the bride where, where they look at each other and they say, which means I, I consecrate myself completely unto you. That word consecrate, it's like I'm setting myself apart as holy unto you. Every part of me belongs to you from this day forward. And Isaiah tells us here in this scripture that God will develop a heart in his people that's willing to make that level of commitment not just to a person, but to a city. They would be so fiercely devoted to the city that God has called them to that they would make vows like a young man to his bride. I'm here. I'm going to love you. I'm going to cherish you. To have you, to hold you in good times and in bad times. For richer or for poorer. Even if it means it's going to cost me more money to live in this place or I have to abandon the American ideal, I'm going to sacrifice my resources because I love you enough to stay committed to you, O city. In, in richer, poorer, in sickness and in health, pandemic or no pandemic, mask or no mask, housing crisis or no housing crisis, if the city's thriving or she's on life support, it does not matter to me. I'm planting myself here because this is where God has called me and I'm not leaving, forsaking all others. I know that there's some other pastors out there, bigger houses, bigger yards, more pleasurable weather systems, but when they came calling, when Idaho came calling, when Tennessee came calling, when Texas came calling, when Oklahoma was offering $10,000 for Bay Area residents to move during the, you remember that during the pandemic? How thirsty do you have to be to offer 10, how jacked up does your state need to be to offer $10,000 for people to come? I'm not interested. I'm not flirting with other cities. I'm not fantasizing about other cities. I'm not entertaining an affair with other cities. This is where God's called me. This is where I'm planted. This is where I'm committed. I'm giving myself completely over to you. And of course, Daly City and Pacifica and Marin and all the other places. And uh, yeah, okay, I get it. <laughs> you didn't say my city. You know what I mean. God has woven that kind of commitment into the hearts of the people of this house. I, I love what uh, the theologian Matthew Henry says. He, he says, it bodes well to a land when a city's natives and inhabitants are pleased with it, prefer it before other lands, when its princes marry their country and resolve to take their lot with it. Man, I think that's the kind of community that God has built here. But, but that kind of devotion does not happen in isolation, meaning it's a two-way street. Jesus said it like this. He says, you cannot give what you've not first received. You cannot give commitment that you've not first received. And Isaiah understands this, which is why he's very intentional about the sequence of his words in this prayer. Because Isaiah, before telling us that there will be people who commit themselves to a city with this level of devotion, he reminds us that God has first committed himself in such a way to us. Look at again how he says it in the fourth verse. He says, your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God, for the Lord delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. As we've said in earlier sermons, we need to remember again when we see this phrase that it's not a promise made to the macro entity of a city. It's a statement made over the individuals of that city. God loves people. 
God is not nearly as concerned about landscape and structures because those things will inevitably burn, but he cares deeply about people because they will remain forever. And so to the people of San Francisco, he says, you are my bride. Now, now that identity, it, 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 it requires some responsibility on our part, some things we need to understand and embrace if we're gonna lay hold of this promise that Isaiah is making to us. So what I'd like to do in our remaining moments together is I wanna look at two aspects of this identity that we need to embrace if we are going to be the promised bride that Isaiah speaks of here. The first thing we need to understand is this. We've been called. We've been claimed. We've been chosen. Look at, again, the language of, of Isaiah here. He says, the Lord delights in you and he will claim you as his bride. Now, I know at face value that might sound a little bit offensive to some of the women in the room. You're like, claimed? Pfft. Ain't no man claiming me. I'm a strong, independent woman. If anything, I'm claiming you, all right? Like, you ain't claiming me. Let's be clear. And I get that, so I don't mean to offend you, but before you get too offended, let's Let's dive into this word a little bit and understand what Isaiah is speaking to, the cultural practice, because I think it'll help us frame in this promise a little bit better. Uh, this word claimed in the Hebrew language, our definition would be the word espoused or betrothed. Uh, in our modern context, it would essentially be the word engaged. Or if you want the more ratchet version, look to our sermon title today, God liked it, so he went and put a ring on it, all right? <laughs> That's essentially what Isaiah is saying here. But it's not necessarily the engagement process that we might be familiar with. Um, I apologize in advance if this sounds a bit barbaric, but it is, in fact, the way that things used to work in history past. So uh, if a, in biblical times, marriage was, was less of a commitment between two individuals, and it was more of a contract between two families. When a young man reached marrying age, uh, his father was in charge of approach, uh, to, to approach uh, the father of another woman in their city that he thought might make a good wife for his son and begin a bit of a negotiation process with the father of that woman to see if the two families could unite into one. He, he might say something to the effect of, hey, you know, my son, he noticed your daughter. He like likes her a lot. And... Uh, We'd like to see if we can come to an arrangement. I really think the two of them would be happy together. I think that they could uh, preserve our legacy as families. And so I propose that we allow our children to get married and, and, and they can then extend our family line for generations to come. And if the father of the woman was in agreement, a verbal contract was made, and it was sealed with the exchange of some goods known as a dowry. Uh, in their day, a dowry would have been uh, a headdress intricately woven with some coins or some, some valuable jewels that the woman would wear on her wedding day as a headdress. And thus, the modern practice of asking the father for permission and the engagement ring were born. That's where we got it all from. But, but once that dowry was exchanged and an agreement had been made, this bride was now spoken for. She was claimed. Someone called dibs, okay? <laughs> she was off the market. N nobody else could try to swoop in and, and take her for themselves. The father was not able to take the dowry and begin to negotiate with other suitors in the community and say, how much money will you give me? No, they, they, this woman was spoken for. She was off the table. She was claimed. 
And Isaiah, when he begins to speak to us with this same language, is suggesting that the same is true for us. To put it simply, he's saying, hey, you're off the market now. God's claimed you. You're his. You're his bride. No one else is allowed to try to come in and sweep you off your feet. No, you belong to your king now. In the same way that a, an engagement ring on the finger of a woman would announce to the world that she has been spoken for, so the spirit of God on the inside of the believer is a down payment and a deposit that declares you've been spoken for and you've been promised to your groom. You're his, you're claimed. Now, if that's true, it tells me two things. Number one, if, if you're claimed, it tells me that you're not an accident, that God did not take you begrudgingly into relationship. He wasn't like, well, I guess I'll take this broken, messed up individual and allow them to come into my family if this is all I've got to work with. No. In the same way that the father would scan the city and find the perfect bride for his son, so the Lord has scanned the landscape of humanity and he has looked for you. He said, you're the one I want. You're the one I've chosen. You're the one that my heart desires and I'm bringing you into relationship with me. And if you are claimed, that means nothing in your life is circumstantial. Your birth, the time in which you live, the job you've got, the family you've got, the influence, the people that are surrounding you, all of them intentionally crafted by the one who claimed you because he's got a plan to use you in your day and age. And he said, I'm calling you for this season so that you can be used in your life. That, that, it's, it's intentional, it's purposeful. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it tells me that if you've been claimed by the Lord, you can't be claimed by the enemy any longer. He can't claim you because he didn't pay for you. He took from you, but he never gave. He robbed you of your joy, of your peace, of your future, of your hope. He tried to talk sweet to you and tell you what you wanted to hear, but it was only to leverage you against yourself. As the scriptures say, he's the father of lies and everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie and his only job description is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. So he can't claim you anymore. There is only one who can claim you and it's the one that paid the price to be in relationship with you. And he did not pay with a mere dowry or some nominal fee. No, he paid with his precious blood. As it declares in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and his stripes bought our healing. And as if that wasn't enough, he allowed himself to be sold to the enemy for 30 pieces of silver so that the enemy could claim his life but no longer stake claim to our life. The price has been paid. You've been liberated unto your king. Period. Signed, sealed, delivered. You're his. So the next time the enemy tries to come catcalling or sliding into your DMs, you tell that joker who you've been spoken for, all right? I got a man already. I don't need this. I don't want no scrub because a scrub is a guy that can't get no love from me. <laughs> Hanging out the judgment side of eternity's bride, trying to holler at me. Okay, I got, I got rhymes. Y'all don't know about me. All right, y'all don't know about Don't sleep on Tim. <laughs> I tried to do that last service and it didn't work so well. Okay. You've been claimed, you've been chosen, you've been called. But it doesn't end there. There's, there's a second aspect of this identity that I think is, 
is crucial. We need to understand if we're gonna truly embrace this identity as a bride. And not only do we need to know that you've been claimed, but we also need to know that you're being prepared. You've been claimed, but you're being prepared. Back to the biblical betrothal process. So in biblical times, once a man and a woman were engaged to be married, they immediately entered into the preparation process. And kind of ironically, like our modern day, that process lasted usually about 12 months, about a year. And during that year, the bride and the groom both had some unique responsibilities to prepare themselves accordingly for marriage. It was the job of the groom to secure a home for the individual. Um, Generally, that meant he had to build the home, and so he would build a house for the two of them to enter into together once they were married, the threshold he could carry his bride over. Uh, It was also the job of the groom to secure their financial future. He needed to ensure that there was enough money to support this this new family that he was going to be entering into, and that they didn't need to rely on the income of their families to survive. And all the parents said, amen. (laughs) And lastly, it was the job of the groom to ensure that he was spiritually capable to step into this next season. Often he would seek the counsel of his father or his grandfather or other wise men in the community to ensure that he was the man of God, prepared and ready to step into this next season of being a husband. But likewise, the bride also had some responsibilities, some things that she needed to do. And one biblical writer, he captures those responsibilities in this paragraph where he says, then as now, the engagement period gave the bride time to prepare for her new role, to gather what was most valuable, to adjust relationships and future expectations with parents, siblings, and friends, and in some cases, to become better acquainted with her fiance. So essentially, Once the two were engaged, they entered into a very intentional preparation season. They knew that they were gonna be married before they knew it, and there were some things they needed to get in order before they stepped into that next chapter. And anyone who has been married, gone through that process in the room, you understand how this preparation season looks. From the moment you enter into engagement, it's like everything is about the wedding. Uh, Robin and I, we celebrated uh, 19 years of marriage this last May. And uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I know, it's hard to believe based on how young I look, I moisturize. It's great. Uh, (laughs) But uh, although we've uh, been married for almost 20 years, we've actually known each other for almost 30 years. Um, We grew up around the corner from each other. And uh, we attended elementary school together and junior high together and high school together. We literally walked to school together when we were kids. I, and it's like something out of a movie, I promise. It's, it's awesome. Uh, in fact, her cousin, Amy, introduced the two of us at her sixth grade graduation. That's when I met Robin for the first time. And I know people hate it when you say this. And if my daughters ever said this to me, I would rebuke them in the name of Jesus and ground them for 10 years. But I'd be lying if I didn't say it. I think we knew from the get that we were gonna get married. We, we just knew that we were made for each other. We'd date other people throughout junior high and high school, but we would always end up together because we knew that we were supposed to be together. In fact, um, <laughs> I remember when I got my first cell phone, uh, a Nokia brick. Anybody remember those phones? Like snake on the Nokia? Dude, some of y'all don't even know. Remember pagers? Anyone have a pager? Anyone know pager code here? Dude, this is my service. Last service, they're looking at me like, I don't understand. You're probably a drug dealer if you had a pager, all right? Yeah, I I, I know how it used to go. 
Now, anyway, so when I got my first phone, the Nokia brick, I was in a car with a buddy of mine, and it, uh, it butt-dialed her. And uh, sorry if that's an offensive statement. I don't, it's what the kids are saying. It butt-dialed her. And uh, it, she wasn't home, and so it recorded me on her answering machine at her house. And as I was in the car with my buddy, I was dating somebody else at the time, but I was telling him how, you said like it's a bad thing. Just wait till the end of the story. I told him in the car, I'm like, I know I'm dating this other girl right now, but Robin's supposed to be my wife, and it's only a matter of time before the two of us get together. And she had that recording on her answering machine when she got home. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's right. You don't know. <laughs> it was an accident. <laughs> but since we knew that we were to get married, I liked it, so I went and put this ring on it. I got her wedding ring right here. I don't know why it's not on her finger, but that's cool. All right. Uh, the story goes, we had spent the day in Santa Cruz and, uh, with some friends, and I don't know, we just had one of those days where I'm like, today's the day I want to ask her to marry me. And I'd already bought the ring. And so when we got back into town, uh, we dropped her off at her house, and I went home and I showered. I put on some Dockers, some Kenneth Cole polo shirt, doused myself in Aqua de Joe or Aspen or whatever it was we were wearing back then. And then I made my way over to the elementary school where we met outside of the uh, sixth grade classroom. And I set up a little TV tray table there. And I poured some Martinelli's apple cider because we weren't old enough to buy anything else at the time. And the plan was a friend of ours was gonna walk her over to the school and coax her to go. And then she would see me right outside the classroom there and I'd be waiting to propose. So... She comes around the corner, hadn't showered, still filthy. Uh, <laughs> said last service, like, that's the story of our marriage. I'm always clean, she's always filthy. It's fine, it's whatever. <laughs> she said it, not me, just to be clear. But as soon as she saw me, she knew what was about to happen, and she just came running and, and plopped herself in my lap. I never even had a chance to get down on one knee, and she's like, yes, yes, I'll marry you. And I was like how do you know I'm asking? I'm just kidding. <laughs> said, yes, yeah. And, and, uh, and so I took this ring and I, I slid it on her finger and it immediately slid off because we were children and it was too big, but we grew into our wedding rings. And on that day in May of 2003, we were engaged. And a year later on May 16th, 2014, or excuse me, 2004, we got married at Empire Mines and Grass Valley and we lived happily ever after. There it is. Okay. That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> she said, are you going to ask me to marry you again in front of all these people? Like, yeah, we're going to do a vow renewal today at church. It's going to be great. But I remember after we announced our friends and family and showed off the ring and all this stuff, immediately we entered into that season of preparation. It was like every decision was about the upcoming wedding. We were consumed with thinking about it. Every day we lived in light of the marriage. Like a good biblical husband, I went and got our house prepared and found a place for us to live. And my dad and I remodeled it and made it look nice for our new family. And we began to sit down and look at our finances together. We looked at what we were spending and where our money was going and the debts we had. And we began to make decisions, understanding that the way we spent our money in this season was ultimately going to affect our future. So we needed to adjust accordingly. Like the bride we read about a moment ago, we began to look at our possessions and, and go, what doesn't really matter? What do we not need to bring? 
What are we clinging to that we probably should just let go because it doesn't belong in the next season of our lives? We begin to assess the relationships that we were in, friends of the opposite sex that it would be inappropriate to remain in relationship with as a married couple, relationships that were gonna be toxic to our marriage and we made decisions and had some difficult conversations because we recognized that where we're going means I need to let go of some things in this season so that I can step into the next successfully. We had premarital counseling, wanted to make sure we were building on a stable foundation as we got into marriage, that we were preparing ourselves accordingly and not walking into marriage haphazardly, having seen so many of our friends spend time and energy and money and effort to just throw a big party in a temporary pleasure called a wedding and not prepare themselves for the marriage that was going to come after that wedding. Every moment, every decision, all of it done with the marriage in mind. We knew that a year might seem like a long time, but before we know it, in the blink of an eye, we were gonna find ourselves standing at that altar before a crowd of witnesses entering into our future together. The last thing we wanted to be was unprepared. I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> Mopping up what I'm spilling. Because I'm laying it on pretty thick. I'm not talking about Robin and I anymore. I'm talking about us. Hey, you are the bride. If you have made a decision to follow Jesus, you've been claimed, you've been chosen, you are the bride of Christ. And let me remind you today, there is a wedding coming. Revelation 19 says it's the wedding supper of the Lamb where the bride is gathered together before the Lord and we join him for all eternity. And I know that life might feel like a long time as you endure things and the pains and the hurts of this existence. But friends, according to scripture, it is a puff of smoke. It's gonna go by within the blink of an eye. And before you know it, you will be standing there with your groom in eternity, looking him eye to eye before a crowd of witnesses, hoping to hear those coveted words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. But as you sit here today in this beautiful space between engagement and eternity, you have been given the gift of preparation. To prepare yourself for the moment where you stand before your groom. To not walk into that moment unprepared for eternity, but to recognize that every day, every moment is a gift to live with your coming marriage in mind. To live in light of your future reality. To, to be the bride of Matthew 25 that said they kept their lamps burning, their fires hot. They never let them grow dim because they understood even in his delay, I need to be prepared when my groom comes. The stewards of Matthew 25 who were entrusted with some goods for a season and the master said, I am gonna come back and get you one day, but while I'm gone, I want you to leverage all that I've entrusted to you for my glory and not your temporary pleasures. To store up for yourselves things in heaven and not here on earth where moth and rust destroy. The bride of Ephesians chapter five that said, I am keeping myself pure. I'm gonna live an undefiled life, a holy life set apart for my God. The, the, the bride of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 who recognizes she's been promised to one man and doesn't share herself with others in her community but says, I am keeping myself holy unto him. You're that bride. 
to prepare every day, every moment, every opportunity, every dollar, every gift through the lens of a reality that is coming whether we like it or not because you will be there before you know it. And in that moment, it's too late to prepare. As you stand before Jesus, it is too late to go, I I should have done those relationships differently. I should have done that investment differently. I should have used my gifts. It's too late. No, prepare now for that moment. I pose this question to you in closing. Are you preparing? Are you living your life with that reality in mind? Because it's coming whether you like it or not. Because let me offer some good news to this, uh, this reality as well. Whether or not you're preparing, he is. He's preparing a place for you right now. He looked at his disciples one day and he said, hey, I gotta go. I would love to stay with you, but I need, I need to go because I have to prepare a place for you. I'm making a room available to you. I'm building a structure for you to reside in for eternity. I'm setting the table. He's making preparations for your arrival, even as we sit in this room right now. And he asks, do you love me enough to prepare yourself as well? Are you preparing? And if not, consider this your formal invitation to change the way you look at life, to recognize that all of this is for the purpose of that, to live with eternity in mind, every day, every moment, every decision. And maybe as we conclude here, in fact, I'll invite the worship team to come with this. Maybe, maybe, maybe there'd be some in the room today who would say, I've not been preparing because I haven't said yes to the invitation. You know, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. He'll just stay there. Wait. He'll just hold out that ring. You ready yet? You ready yet? You ready yet? He doesn't go, well, you had your chance. I offered that to you a decade ago. You said, no, I'm moving on. (laughs) Finding someone else. Nah. He's a God that just sits. Hey, I'm ready to put a ring on that finger. If you've been running from God today, your groom is waiting for you to come. In fact, with this last scripture, hear the invitation. He says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, not like that, (laughs) but parched, unsatisfied, longing for something, If you're thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Verse 20, he who is faithful, a faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon, sooner than you realize. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord be upon all of God's people. Father, in Jesus' name, we hear the invitation today. The invitation to prepare the invitation to come and say yes. First, I pray for those of us in the room that may have said yes, but have neglected this invitation to prepare accordingly. We've been coasting through life, just existing, 
God, we're sorry. We repent today. We lay everything on the table again. I just picture like a soon-to-be bride and groom laying all the plans out on the table. Hey, what do we got to do? How do we need to prepare? What details do we need to to ensure are taken care of so that we can enter into this next chapter successfully? God would say, I want to sit next to you and have that conversation. I'll be faithful to point out the things that need to adjust, but I want you ready when you come to me as my bride. But, But maybe for others in the room, as I mentioned a moment ago, you're the one on the other side of that that proposal he's on one knee asking hey would you would you come unto me today and if you are at a distance from God you're not in a relationship but your heart is telling you right now that you need to say yes to this invitation say yes to the proposal I want to pray a very simple prayer of commitment with you and if that identifies you this morning would you just quickly boldly look up at me and wave your hand say Tim that's me I need to come home to Jesus today got you bro thanks yeah right on thank you man Awesome, right there. Yeah. Got you over here. Sorry, man. Yeah. One in the the rafters. There we go. Okay. All right, for those who are making this decision to come to Christ, I want you to repeat after me so they don't feel alone in this moment and say it loud and, and bold. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you to be your disciple and walk in your ways. Help me to be your bride from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, celebrate like someone just said, you may kiss your bride. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, We want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.